0: It beautiful the way
1: it is the way it looks at you the way it lives Welcome to be simply this is Suzanne Toro and I want to thank you for joining us today we have special guest Stephanie Arnold she is a writer producer speaker thought leader and author of 37 seconds today we're going to dive into her journey and her story of following her intuition that led her to saving her life without further ado let's dive in with stephanie
2: Thank you for being here today. I'm really excited uh, to introduce your great work, your writer, and you're sharing a very personal story with the world, what your passion is behind sending, sharing your story, 37 seconds of passing away and then coming back, like what's your deepest like knowing and doing that? Because that's a pretty, you know, significant thing to happen and then to want to share it, what's the goal there for you, what was the lead inspiration?
3: Yeah, thank you so much. It's, I, it's about time that you and I connected, right? Exactly. So I'm happy, I'm really excited about that. Um, so I, I, when I was going through what I was going through, which we'll get into, um, I was Googling everything known to man about premonitions, foreboding, um, and those stories didn't exist in pregnancy. And at least they weren't on a Google search at the time that I had this whole thing happen to me. And so the, the passion that I have now is, is to not just educate the public, you as a patient, and listening to your intuition, whether it comes from a spiritual place or whether it comes from that we're hardwired from it, that that to me is second nature as far as the first part of it is to listen to it because it's very real and it can ultimately save your life. And I also am educating clinicians. To listen to their patients a little differently than they have been in the past. I think I think mo- not most, but a lot of physicians, nurses, doctors will will you know brush off somebody's knowing that I call it. You know, you don't know how you know. You just do. You as an individual know your body better than anyone else, and so it's about taking action, being an advocate for yourself, and then having the clinician listen to you differently and, and being assured that they are hearing you.
2: Yeah. Beautiful. What has been the feedback loop for people to you, like like where they listen, maybe because they heard your
0: story or.
3: I've had, you know, I've, I've been on book tours, talked on TV and you know, the, the emails that I get are people in person will say, you know, after so many people have told, you no and said, this couldn't be possible and everything's fine. I would have listened to them. And I, I always reiterate the fact that then you would have stayed dead because ultimately it was repeating, repeating, repeating what I believe to be true that ultimately had one physician listen and saved my life. So the feedback I've been getting is, you know, like even on the tick as you and I talked to off camera, um, even on TikTok, I had one woman last week say, "You know, I don't even like your TikToks, but this is the vision I was having, and I woke up in a cold sweat because I have to take a flight at six a.m. and and she's like, and she's like, and I I just see it crashing, and I don't know what to do and everything, and I'm like, I'm like, okay, well, first of all, if I had this kind of vision, and those those are things they're connecting with my story on something you know that's right. happened to them personally." I'm like, first of all, if you're feeling this so strongly, is there a way for you to change the flight? If there's a way for you to change the flight, then I would do it because it's, it's keeping you awake. It's incessant. It's not, it, it's not fading. And second of all, why don't you like my TikToks? I'm like, so, <laughs> I'm like, so she's like, I know that came out wrong, but ultimately she made the decision to not take the flight and drove instead. And she said that feeling of doom just subsided, but she had heard on the news that a plane had crashed. Um, around the time that her flight took off, not knowing whether it was her flight or not, but it was maybe she was feeling that from some other flight, but it was enough yeah. to calm her down. And I always say, I'm like, you'll never regret speaking up and being wrong. You know, yeah. people are going to judge you. People thought I was crazy. People thought, you know, okay, let this woman just, just have this baby and move on. But in the event you are right, it is not worth staying quiet if it's going to save your life. So, Absolutely.
2: uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, well, she definitely then was picking up on, uh, I saw that woman, I was curious, because I was trying to find out, uh, she was definitely picking up on a plane crash, and then associating, because we're, we're two-way radios, so we're like a dolphin or a whale, we all are two-way radios, so we have this thing called the pineal gland between both hemispheres, that is always engaging, um, we're just not aware of it because of the world that we live in as much. So I applaud you for listening to your own.
3: but But then what's, then how do you differentiate between what's going to happen to you in that flight versus what's going to happen to somebody else in that flight? And you know, in this instance, it's not like you can call every airline and every, you know, hub and say there's going to be a crash this morning because the FBI is going to be investigating you. But, um, but what, what do you do to differentiate that this is not happening to you versus happening to something else?
2: Well, it's, uh, it's a practice really, you know, like to, to learn and to listen uh, what's yours and what's not, you know, Uh, people that are very empathic, they can feel other people's emotions and they have to learn, is this my anxiety or stress or is that someone else? Was I one way or different? Same with messages like that. So, um, and I I think your, uh, I advice, if it's incessant, uh, that's really like, I would say the universe, God divine saying, hello, we need you to pay attention to this. So yeah, absolutely. And you never know what she could have intercepted on the way to getting on the plane. So it could have all just been correlated to her missing something that she was associating with the plane crash, but that
3: was the mile marker to like get her to pay attention.
2: Yeah. At the end of the
3: day, she's fine. It subsided. She drove. It was probably an inconvenience for a few hours, but she's alive. She's calmer. And nothing happened on the flight. Maybe, maybe, I, I don't know. But, you know, to me, I'm like, okay, that's peace of mind. I would oh, rather react by talking about what I feel is about to happen, move people out of the way and nothing happened Then me not to do something and then prove that I'm right, that something happens and then say, shit, I saw right. this happened. Okay. Now why did not I do anything? <laughs> absolutely.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, share with the listeners your story. They can read it in 37 seconds, correct. But yes. I, if you don't want to totally spoil it, uh, share it in a way that people can yeah. understand your, your, experience.
3: Uh, yeah. So thank you. Um, so I, I met my husband in 2008. He relocated me from LA from a, a really productive TV career because I worked in reality television for most of my career and moved from LA to Chicago. And that's pretty much where my career ended. And then we started I had a, he had a child from a previous relationship. And so we wanted our own and we had, I had, The first child, Adina, after three rounds of IVF. So some complications, but in the scheme of things, not really. The only real complication I had with her during the birth was that she was too big and I ended up needing a C-section. And then with the second one, Jacob, I got pregnant with him on my seventh round of IVF. And everything went swimmingly for the first 20 weeks. You know, everything was great. My husband is an economist an expert witness. And he was um, chosen to be the chief economist for the New York attorney general's office. So very science brained PhD, university of Chicago, former air force pilot. So you get the type we're splitting our time between New York and Chicago. And at the 20 week ultrasound, I'm diagnosed with a placenta previa. And I don't know what that is, but in the moment that the doctor tells us this, I look at my husband and I had this sinking feeling. And I said, I don't know what this is, but I'm already special in the category of my blood type, which is O negative, O negative, which is 7% of the population. I said, I don't want to be special in any other category. And he's like, honey, you need to relax. It's totally fine. You're getting great prenatal care. You know, we don't even know we'll get all the information. And so we get home and I start Googling, obviously, um, and what a placenta previa is. And it's basically where the placenta is growing on top of the cervix. And, you know, as the belly grows, as the uterus grows, it should take over move out of the way. But in the event it doesn't, you know, the likelihood of C-section is a little higher and, you know, it's like, okay, it's, um, you know, that's not a big deal. I've had a C-section before that I'm not afraid of the unknown, but then I kept reading. And it said, a placenta previa can turn into an accreta, which is what Kim Kardashian had, which is where the placenta marries itself to the uterus. If that happens, um, it could cause some bleeding. If that happens, you might deliver prematurely. If that happens, you, you might hemorrhage. If that happens, you might need a hysterectomy. And if that happens, you and the baby could lose your lives. And I sat back and I call it a knowing, like, you don't know how, you know, you just do. It is, you know, whether one wants to call it, you're hearing it from outside of yourself. I have my own belief system on all of this, but I heard it loud and clear. And I looked at my husband and I said, this is going to happen to us. The only difference is the baby's going to be fine, but I'll be down on the operating table. So he looks at it and he's like, okay, honey, what you're afraid of happening is a half, of a half, of a half percent chance of happening. That's never going to happen. And I'm like, you know, but he's not listening to me. And I'm like, but I know this is going to happen. So I can't talk to somebody left brain when you're right brain and you're spiritual and he is not. So, you know, what do I do? I start telling everybody. I tell friends, I tell, you know, doctors, I tell nurses, I said, this, this, and this is going to happen. Sent a previous return to a need a hysterectomy. You're going to need extra blood. Um, who do I talk to that when I need a hysterectomy? Like all of these things, everybody thought I was crazy. Um, and in their defenses, um, I had lots of tests, and all the tests were negative for what I was afraid of happening. So, um, I mean, there were times, and I write about this book. There were times that, like, I was, you know, taking my daughter in a stroller, and she, um, it was she was two at the time, or a little under two, and it was winter. So the fountain was dry. And so I was explaining how it's so beautiful when the fountain is running. And all of a sudden in my mind's eye, the fountain started spurting blood mm-hmm. and I had a visceral reaction to it. Like my blood was draining from my yeah. body and I felt like I was hemorrhaging. So I called my husband. I said, meet me in the yard. ER. We go to the ER, you know, they're like, this is Are you okay? I'm like, no, obviously I'm hemorrhaging. And I'm wearing black leggings this winter. You know, I, I'm afraid if I take off the leggings and, you know, I'm going to lose the baby. And they're like, you know, you're fine. Everything's fine. And man, fluid's fine. Everything's, everything's okay. Um, and my my husband says, you know, okay, great. It's a, it's a false alarm. And I'm like, no, this is a warning. It was so clear right. about what was going to happen. So I met with, you know, I was told that if I needed a hysterectomy during childbirth, that, that my OB couldn't do the procedure, that I would be transferred to maternal fetal medicine. But you don't want an MFM to do it. You want a, gyne- a gynecological oncologist to do it because they have more experience with high-risk reproductive, high risk reproductive organ surgeries. And when 20% of your blood supply is going to the uterus, you want a gynoc to do it. So yeah. I made an appointment with the head of gynecologist at Northwestern Memorial Hospital. Now, mind you, teaching hospital, 12,000 babies a year, I am batshit crazy going to make an appointment in this waiting room while women are actually suffering from cancer. And my husband gets to the waiting room and he sees these women with IVs in their arm, no hair on their hands. He's like, I'm embarrassed to be here. And I said, I don't know what to tell you. Maybe this doctor has heard of a patient having this level of foreboding and he can give me some sort of homework to do. There's something different because they are aware at a very deep level. I mean, maybe I have some form of cancer. I have no idea. Yeah. And uh, so we go, we're in the meeting room with him, his resident, the, so the doctor that's head of gynecology, Dr. Shing, his resident, Dr. Hill Park, my husband and I in this little, you know, waiting room or this little conference room. And he's like, how can I help you, Ms. Tharnell? And I said, well- I said my placenta previa is going to turn into an accreta. Um, I'm gonna need a hysterectomy at the time my delivery. And now I see you, you see me. My husband was like, it's very mafia-like. I see you, you see me, you're my doctor, right? So I said, I said, you're you're my doctor, and you know, that's it. And he looks at me, the resident stops writing. I mean, it's it's a the moment in a sitcom. <laughs> and he sits back and he says, Um, Mrs. Arnold, have you been on the internet? And I was like, why, well, yes, I have doctor, but this is going to happen. And he's like, okay, well, let's get an MRI. If the MRI is positive for an Acreta, then I'll schedule myself the day of your mandatory C-section at 37 weeks. And we'll take care of it then. I said, okay. And I felt better because I had something to do that was a little bit more invasive, less, you know, troublesome for the child, but but more, maybe I would get more information. So we did right. the MRI. The MRI is negative for an Acreta. And my husband says, you should feel better. And I said, I feel worse because I'm running out of people to tell this crazy foreboding story too. So I have a conference with a call with anesthesia. Anesthesia tells me, you know, this is where you'll have epidural. This is where you recover. This is, you know, these things I say, I know that, but what happens if this, 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 and this happens? I try one last time. And she said, um, Ms. Sarah, we're in a teaching hospital. We prepare for all sorts of emergencies. I hope I made you feel better. And I said, she said, she'll never forget the last words I said to her. She said, I told her, it is what it is. So I hung up with her, and then her name was Dr. Grace Lim. And I hung up with her, and I took to Facebook. I said, if anybody has my blood type, I'm going to need it. You know, that. Mind you, I'm, I'm way off the rails. Like at this point, anybody trying to convince me otherwise that, that like, like trying to say the data is showing this is going to happen. I wasn't listening to any of it. I mean, this woman saw me in Starbucks and she was pregnant. She was like, oh, how's the pregnancy going? I'm like, I'm going to die. Very matter of fact. I mean, my friends stayed away from me. My family was like, you know, call us when the baby, you deliver the baby. Like, you know, and I, I understand in yeah. hindsight, but you know, they didn't see what I was feeling. Right. So, um, 36 weeks to the day, I, Jonathan's out of town and I start bleeding on the kitchen floor and I'm like, it's time. So I call him, he gets on a plane and starts heading back to Chicago And I'm in the hospital and, you know, my doctor says, you know, Stephanie, you've been stressed this whole pregnancy. I think it's time. The ORs are quiet. Let's go ahead and take Jacob. And my daughter is there. And, you know, I kiss her a million times and I'm like, she's never going to remember me. I'm typing on Skype chat at the time to my husband. I'm like, you know, please know you've made me the happiest woman in the world, please. Um, This child is not to blame for this. Please love our children. I mean, I don't remember everything that I said. And then he still wasn't getting it. He said, um, he said, where do I meet you? And I said, eighth floor recovery, hopefully. And then um, they wheeled me down and I broke down crying. And I told my doctor, I'm like, you need to put me under general anesthesia. She said, Stephanie, I put you under general anesthesia. I put the baby under, I put the baby to sleep. It's too dangerous. I know you're nervous because Jonathan's not here. I promise you we're here. We'll take care of you. And you know, that's it. Cause you're, you know, what am I going to do? I I can't run away from this. I know I'm being wheeled into the room that is going to give life to my son. And I'm a hundred percent sure it's going to take mine. So I get set up for a C-section if, you know, if you're not familiar with this, the curtain is front of your face and your arms are in a T and you have, um, you know, your epidural, you have everything in, and then then everything gets at you really quiet. And uh, they deliver a happy and healthy baby. And seconds later, I'm dead. I ended up having a very, um, very rare pregnancy complication called an amniotic fluid embolism, which is a one in 40,000 risk where amniotic cells get into the mother's bloodstream. And if you happen to be allergic to it, your body goes into somewhat of an anaphylactic shock. And in most cases, you don't make it. At the time, Northwestern had been around for about 30 years. They delivered 12,000 babies a year. They had 10, 10 in their history. Six did not make it, and the other three were in permanent vegetative states. So it did not look good. Um, the first phase of an amniotic fluid embolism is cardiac arrest, and that's where I flatlined. Um, and but there was um, there was some there were a couple of things in the OR that I didn't predict. The first being that um, there there's a crash cart right there, and they were able to resuscitate me and intubate me 37 seconds later. And then the second phase of an AFB starts, which is called DIC, which is your body's inability to clot blood. Um, Anesthesiologists nickname it death is coming. And mind you, I'm O negative 7% again in the population. Um, I can only receive O negative blood. And so there was extra blood in the OR. Normal C-section, they probably have about six units of blood. There was extra units of blood supplied and later, I found out that that anesthesiologist, that very last phone call I made, um, she said she was uncomfortable that I'd had a baby before, had had a C-section before, had um, sought out specialists to save my life. And I was so very specific about the things that I saw that she was uncomfortable and flagged my file and incorporated those extra measures that saved my life. So... Your normal body has 20 units of blood. I was given 60 units of blood and blood product to save my life. And so at that point, they stabilized me. Um, and they put me in the surgical ICU in a medically induced coma. And that's when Jonathan arrived. So um Jonathan learned from the anesthesiologist what had happened. The anesthesiologist said, Do yourself a favor, don't look it up because it doesn't look good if you if you research it. Um and and then he said, "If she needs a hysterectomy, this is the doctor we met with two months before." And the anesthesiologist thought that was odd, but she took note of it. And she said, "You know, she's stable now. I, You know, hopefully we got everything stabilized." And um, Jonathan went to the surgical ICU and saw me there. And seven hours later, the machines, bells, and the whistles started going off, and turned out that I was not stable; that I was still bleeding. So they called in Dr. Schenck to perform the hysterectomy. The pathology on the uterus showed that an accreta had started to form, but where the MRI was at the time it was, whether it was too early or whatever it was, um, was not detected. And so then, you know, you're in a coma, you're waiting. My kidneys fell offline. Every Everything was Armageddon on my body. And Jonathan is left holding a, you know, four-day-old, five-day-old, six-day-old having to be a parent to two other girls and um, on day six they they extubated me to see where I was because they couldn't tell even though I had full oxygenation, they were just not sure you know what kind of neurological deficit there would be and when they took me down I was still severely edemic and you looked down at my swollen belly and I'm like I'm still fucking pregnant and <laughs> Jonathan was like I think she's going to be okay. (laughs) So one, I knew where I was and two, I was cursing. So he was like, all right, all right, we've got, it's it's there. She's down. Uh, And then, you know, then going through the recovery, it took took a long time, but the biggest question I had throughout my recovery was how did I know? How did I know?
2: Yeah.
3: And so and the doctors would do their rounds, every department on me and me from nephrology, to hematology, to cardiology to, you know, gynecology, you know, everybody was like, how did you know? And I was, and I'm like, you tell me I'm in a teaching hospital. And they're like, well, foreboding exists prior to a cardiac arrest or an embolus, but months before in the detail, you had it. I'm sorry. And so they were like, and they're like, those happened moments before, maybe a day before you feel like, you know, just feeling foreboding, but no. And so then, uh, so one doctor, she was like, I think you need to go spiritual on this one. Mm-hmm. That was not comfortable because yeah. I needed, I needed something, something tangible to hold on to for me. Like, because the hardest part of this, and I continue to get premonitions, but the hardest part of this is being reliant on the spiritual stuff the, the the things that you cannot see, but you can feel. So those yeah. of us that have not been in tune with it prior or have been, and just choose to ignore it because we're like, that's not real. Right. If I had chosen to ignore it, the psychology behind it for me was like, I could have stayed dead. Right.
2: Yeah.
3: I, that is too, or had been too much of a burden to bear. Yeah. And so I go on this journey and, um, I go to different therapists. I, you know, they're like, how can we help you? I said, you can tell me how it is. I saw everything ahead of time. And they're like, let's just worry about getting you out of the trauma. And I'm like, yes, yeah, see, see, this is a problem I have because one doctor said it's self-fulfilling prophecy. Like I manifested this. Oh. <laughs> and I said, I said, so you believe that I could manifest my organs, combining me to hemorrhage and me to hysterectomy. They're like, well, I didn't say we believe it, but I just don't think we can come up with. I said, well, that's an asshole thing to say because I'm already thinking that I manifested this and could have taken myself away from my family. So, right. so, and I took therapist, said, what, what happens if I think that I'm going to have a heart attack, that I'm going to have a heart attack? I said, now I have, I have an issue. So, I ended up seeing a regression therapist and regression therapy um, uses hypnotherapy to take you back into moments of trauma. And I wasn't too optimistic about this. I've got to tell you, but there was nothing traditional about our story. So why do I think traditional therapy would have helped? And I'm too type A, if you couldn't figure that out by now to be hypnotized. So I'm like, you know, whatever. So then I'm like, all right, I'll give it a chance. So I ended up videotaping my therapy because, you know, this type A personality wasn't going to have somebody hypnotize me. And then I'd be clucking like a chicken every time somebody said hello, yeah. <laughs> you know, or I would if I didn't remember anything, <laughs> That's went, That's smart. <laughs> right? So I'm like, I, I, it wasn't my TV background that recorded it. It was me saying, I can't remember what I had for breakfast. I want to remember this, if this is going to be helpful, if she's going to give me exercises to do. So it took probably 30 sessions to get me back into the OR. And by the time she did, um, it was, it, the video is quite graphic where you see my body convulse and seize. And then I explain what happened after I flatlined and what I saw the doctors doing and who hit the button for the code and what nurse jumped on my chest to give me CPR, what my doctors were doing. I mean, it was just, it was so detailed in 3d and then um and she also asked that like, you want to know anything about past lives I'm like no because I can't you know I have no way of proving if that's true or not, unless I speak a completely different language fluently to say okay this is this is something valid but I'm like that's not gonna help me I'm like I just want to remember 37 seconds and I also want to remember like what was I missing during those three months I was seeing everything around me what was somebody sending me messages what was going on and that's that's. I'll leave that as the hint in the book because I do come yeah. to those conclusions, but but all of it ultimately, um, what ended up happening was, you know, I had these tapes. I explain what happens, and Jonathan takes a quick look at it, and he's like, "How do you know this isn't a recalled episode of Grey's Anatomy in your head?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> So he, you know, I was like, okay, after I was done calling him a lot of names, I said, all right, it's a fair point. Yeah. So I go back to the therapist. So how do you know what I'm telling you is real? Right. And she says, sometimes the only, the only um, validation we get is the patient feels better and you feel better. And I said, that's not good enough for me. I have witnesses. So luckily I had it on tape and I took it back to the doctors who were present Um, and if any of your audience is interested, we're on a Netflix series called surviving death. And in episode one, 30 minutes in, you'll hear one of my doctors describe that moment about what, what it was and how life altering, all altering it was for her. So we go, I take the, the tapes to the doctors who are present. They're like, I had to go to medical school for this. I'm like, this is accurate down to where we're standing, what we're doing. I mean, there were so many details to the story that it was impossible for me to know things that wouldn't be in my medical files, um, things nobody would have told me, and I was unconscious or in what you believe, a different state of consciousness, um, and what I believe as well. And so. So this whole, and then, you know, I saw spirits, I saw hundreds and hundreds of spirits. So that whole experience, understanding that life exists outside of the body, that consciousness exists outside of the body, that, that we are energy, that we just transition from one to another, um, has changed my whole world. Oh, yeah. That's my story in a nutshell.
2: Yeah. Well, I'm proud of you for listening to yourself, uh, You know, as we were talking a little bit about Tibetan traditions and uh, the the reason in Tibetan Buddhist traditions they have it's a science like they as much as their spiritual practice they actually have very rigorous studies through math science physics. Your husband would love it because it like complements both sides of the brain. Yeah. Um, And so nothing's to be. And the reason for that is the training from the unseen to the seen world. So when you're getting closer to your death gateway it starts to appear so you are having the understanding clear knowing of what was going to happen your fate was to save yourself so i think that's really beautiful and now
3: (laughs) yeah no i have that conversation with jonathan all the time it's like you know well if it's predetermination of when you're going to die then where does free will fit into it i said let me explain i said i have an answer for you i said you know i believe they're on two separate paths I said, you know, maybe it was always in my cards. I was going to survive, but how well I survived was due to my free will. Absolutely. And so, so I'm not free willing my way to life. I'm free willing my, my, my life as a survivor and how well I survive. So, um, so that, that definitely, if I, and I, we were in Bhutan um, a few years ago and we went to different monk, like different Buddhist temples. And we were, we went to tiger's nest. If you've ever been, I don't know. I know know where it is. So we were at tiger's nest and this, this monk took us up there and it was quiet before the visitors came. And there was a quiet area in this, this, this temple. And I said, you know, do you mind if I meditate over here? And he's like, no, he's like, do you mind if I sit with you? And I said, no. So, you know, when people, I've been told when people go to Buddhist Um, temples you know you you can actually feel a pain from what they're shedding and you know they're suffering in this lifetime or not suffering in this lifetime because they're shedding it you know in in awaiting the next lifetime right and so we're meditating and I feel it all hit me and I feel it in a way that like I'm tearing and and this monk looks at me. I said, Do you want to feel something? I said, I'll take it back. But I said, Do you? And I don't know what, what I'm doing. It's almost like it's again, it's almost like an out-of-body experience, but I feel intuitively like I'm I'm okay and I'm grounded. And he puts his hand over mine and that. And I said, I just, I just want you to feel what I feel, but I will take it back because you don't want me to to feel so. I put, he puts his hand over mine and he feels like this, this ball of heavy energy. And then I pull it back and he looks at me and, um, and then, you know, I release it and he has said, and he knows nothing about my story. And he is like, you're a doll. And I said, what is that? He said, somebody who's died and come back into their own body. And he says, you have work to do. And I was like, I was like, you're freaking me out. I'm going to go off this mountain (laughs) and I'm going to go get some lunch. Right. So (laughs) it's like, but, but, you know, when I think I'm like, oh, I'm so in control and I'm okay. Then somebody throws me, you know, a left hook. I'm like, just knocks me off of everything. And I'm like, this, it's just so odd. Um, And this is just like second nature. I met, you know, I spent a lot of time with Taoist priests in China at Wudong mountain and Um, and meditating for like 18 hours a day and climbing 8,000 steps to this golden temple. And, um, and, you know, intuition to them is a sixth sense, but it's not the seventh sense. And I'm like, what's that? (laughs) You know, so it's like, these are things that are second nature to them. And we're still discovering the fact that, you know, we can sense empathically things. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. So where has that taken you on your road? Like we touched on a little bit, but you saying, "Ah, I don't want to know uh, some of these things, but where, what doors have opened for you since that you're more, you know, an advocate for people listening to their themselves beyond their rational mind. Um, What else has opened up for you?
3: I think, I think everybody has their, their own quote unquote missions or their own callings in life and their own experiences. I don't think it's a coincidence that I've worked in TV most of my career that when the most important story there was to tell was the one that happened to me that can help affect and save lives. So, so that it's, it's clear in that respect Um, and not in an egotistical way. It's more of like, okay, this is happening. I am, I'm a witness to it. And if I have any gift is the fact that there's no filter. So it comes out. And so there's witnesses around so they could say, okay, this Stephanie is not this medium, you know, asking you for money to do readings. This is, this is something catastrophic that ignited something. And I do believe traumas do ignite this kind of superpower, if you will, if, if intuition is considered that. And With that, in my opinion, just comes a lot of responsibility and sharing your story and inserting yourself into a narrative that will help validate others that might not have as many witnesses or other people think they're crazy. So now when you Google premonitions during pregnancy or for weight, my story will come up and they can be like, hey, I might be feeling something you might not know. And then they can have the conversation with a doctor and say, Hey, I'm feeling this. I know the tests are, the data is not showing any of this, but I keep feeling this. And so instead of brushing somebody off and saying, oh, they're batshit crazy or saying that they're anxious or um, histrionic or neurotic, they can say they can listen differently and you can advocate for yourself differently. So, where is it taking me? I speak at a lot of hospitals, institutions. I've even spoken at the Department of Defense. Mm. Uh, I've spoken at, I, you know, investment companies that want to learn more because nobody learns business from me. What they're learning is the HR, the human, um, side of things of how these CEOs are dealing with, uh, their family family. and their, their staff staff. about going with their gut on things, not just the data. They they don't need me for research on their data. What they need They, what they need to hear is that, hey, maybe their wife was right about the person that they hired and that person has turned into one big cluster. And even though he looked good on paper, she looked good on paper, it wasn't the best thing for you or this family or the company. And so it just puts into, mind, into question all these things that maybe, maybe that should be as valid and as important, just like Steve Jobs talks about intuition, just like you know a lot of you know, Oprah talks about it, that a lot of people talk about, like, maybe we should lean in a little differently. And I'm just nobody. I'm just this average person that had a really crazy, crazy experience. So anybody else who considers themselves average, normal, whatever that is, when they have these experiences, maybe they can say, hey, I'm not alone in this, because it sure as well felt like I was alone going through it. Yeah. Uh,
2: Question. I your like your son's popping into my mind uh how is how was he his first like four or five years like as far as what he shared uh with you like on a soul level or spirit level however you want to refer to it
3: when he was really so he's nine now but it, when he was really young he you could see a light following him he'd sit in the classroom and the sunlight would hit and it would hit on him directly or you know there was something that you could just feel and see about an aura. Like you could just experience it. He's, he's a very gifted piano player. Uh, he is, he's very articulate. He's been speaking since he was extremely young in the months old um, and very empathic, like, you know, for family night, even like for back to school this past week, you know, he, he, he was the only kid in his class that wrote a note to his parents saying, I love you, have a good time. And you know, like he was just very sensitive and compassionate towards others and, and his family. The older he gets, he's more, he's trying to ground himself. And I don't think, I, at this age, I don't think it's deliberate, but he'll be questioning like his friends or family know about my book or have watched it on Netflix and be like, Come on, your mother didn't die, you know, because if she died, she'd stay dead. And then I have to explain what clinical death means and he's systole and all these things. And I'm like, it's too much for his age, but he's like, mommy, you know, can you explain to me this? Because this doesn't make sense. So he's trying to then be the Jonathan, right? He's trying to work the engineering side in his mind, the mathematical equation of how it's possible. But things surprised him. Like we're, we're looking at a house in a completely different state. And this was a month ago and we walk in this. And now we saw, I'd say 25 houses. We walk into this house and he's like, my, this is our house. And I was like, okay, well, I don't know where you get the money that you think that you're going to buy this house because it's too out of our price range. And so he's like, it's our house. And I was like, okay, fine. You know, it's a nice house, but we're not buying it. So we leave like a weekend goes by. And I tell Jonathan, I said, you know what? I'd like to go back to that house. I think there's three houses I want to see and just compare our notes and we walk into the same house and it's Jacob. It's always Jacob. Jacob walks into the kitchen. He says, mommy, look what's on the kitchen counter. Now there's, there's a stack of like a magazine and, you know, a National Geographic and a book on uh, whatever it was and 37 seconds. And, and I'm, when I tell you, like, you saw it across the room, it was sandwiched between, like, he just was zoned right in. So I go to the broker. I said, do you know how this, the owner knows this book? And she's like, what's the significance of the book? I said, I wrote it. And she said, I just got chills. I said, so did I. I said, and meanwhile, I have my husband next to me. He's saying, "Hey, they called you into the gate last week. They probably Googled you, bought the book. That's it. It's the end deal. And then he's off looking at other things in the house. And I said, he's probably right. He's probably right. And then I got a call from the broker saying, she had no idea it was the same person. She bought the book a couple of weeks ago. And she also has no idea why she put it that day in the kitchen because she read it a while ago. <laughs> and so i look at Jacob and I'm like, well, the house is not ours yet, but maybe it's still on the market and maybe it might be later. But, you know, yeah, it's like, you know, and I posted something about it and everybody's like, "Welcome I'm home. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like I, I look at that as a, as a significant sign. So Don't know. I'll go with your gut.
2: (laughs) Go with your gut. Well, the reason I was asking about your was in utero with you. And so you had uh, you have another soul inside you. Most women can attest they feel very different from the time they get pregnant sometimes.
3: I absolutely worry about the fact that you know, all of that feeling of foreboding had some level of effect on him. So I've been hyper-vigilant about watching.
2: I was actually going in another direction, counsel people of all faiths. So from Christianity to one life model to reincarnation model, I would say that your son assisted in helping you with that knowing hmm. because his soul has come from some place so people in a Christian faith might say from God or heaven. From a reincarnation model, it would mean that he just left another life and has entered into your womb for his next life. The soul doesn't lose its, like, it doesn't become a baby when it goes in the womb. It's still omnipresent. It has the ability to see, hear, feel. It's a similar, like how some of the things maybe you experienced when you crossed over, you know, you flatlined. You start to see your subconscious picked up on those, even if your conscious mind didn't retain them. So, um, yeah, that's why I was curious to ask because he, he would have helped in the process and, and you have some indicators that he's intuitive also.
3: Yeah, he did. He said, I think when he was four, when he looked at me, like going to sleep and he was like, you know, I read him a story and it's like, good night. And he's like, mommy, you know, I chose you. And I was like, huh? <laughs> he's like, he's like, yeah. He's like, I know you needed a son and I needed you as my mom. And I was like, great, how explain this one to your father. And so, you know, and Adina definitely has certain moments where, you know, she, she obviously like she, I think she was at school and I don't talk about this a lot, but um, she was in, she was in second grade, I think, second grade. And, you know, you're in the halls and you're saying hi to your teachers you had in kindergarten or whatever. And, you know, this, she would hug this kindergarten almost every day. She loved her so much. And the kindergarten teacher sent me an email. She's like, I, I figured you'd want to know this. And she said, you know, um, so, you know, Dia said to me every day. And she said, today, she looked down and she's like, oh, you're having a baby. And she says, Stephanie, I'm four days pregnant. No one knows I'm pregnant. So I read the email, I read the email to John. He's like, well, shit. Are you, what are you trying to tell me?" And he's like, he's like, I, well, what am I living with a bunch of witches now? And I was like, no. <laughs> so he was That's- like, yeah. So we definitely, yeah. um, I said, look, I said, and I went to Adina. And I said, how did you know she was pregnant? And he said, she said, I felt the head. Beautiful. Yeah.
2: yeah. So
3: well, my daughter did a similar
2: thing when I quit, actually Merrick, who I lost, she stood in front of me and said, hi, baby, before we even had taken a per- pregnancy test. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So how has your husband come along with all this process? Because I'm not, but it's available to the whole wide world. How has he um, opened up his eyes and ears and senses?
3: Um, he hasn't, but what he has done Is that um, what he has done is he says he understands that I'm able to see certain things. He trusts it more. Um, If I say something, he will yield um, now. And he is like, I don't have the patience or the bandwidth or the mental um, acuity to go down this rabbit hole with you to try and figure out how this all works, um, but he said, I do believe that you can sense these things, and so that he's changed. Um, he does have faith in God. We're Jewish, and so he definitely practices um at a different level than he did before, but um, uh, but I don't I can't say that he I'd say he's a hopeful agnostic now, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> um a
2: hopeful agnostic. I love Yeah,
3: that. so I'd say that, but he's not he definitely, he, when I sense something like that's happening in my body or what have you, he's like, okay, let's, let's go to the doctor. Like he wants backups, but he knows that not all tests are accurate and there's margin of error. So he, he goes back to, you know, science to say, you know, I can't believe all the tests were wrong, but yeah you know, that that
2: happens. And luckily you were um, vigilant. Like you, you didn't, you had a deep knowing, so, and kept yourself prepared. So for you having, you know, created this into something that's digestible into a book um, on Netflix, what is next for you? Like, as far as what is the God universe uh showing you to where to
3: walk next you know um, I, keep, I keep seeing this as a movie um I wrote the screenplay to keep it even though I get rejected 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 I'm like I wrote the screenplay it's in play now with a very big producer who knows these things get option and never never but I, I see it so maybe it's wishful thinking but I see it and then with the Netflix people, I developed a podcast called Knowing. So I want to tell other people's stories just to give more, um, more of the audience an understanding that this this runs deep and we're not alone. It runs deep with with a ton of things from danger lurking ahead yeah. to you know seeing death yeah. to um, feeling other people's pain, but at a level that you know it's. Uh, it's entertaining, it's shocking, it's, they're credible sources. They're just that everybody realizes that they're, this is possible, and I, it does not have all of it does not have a scientific explanation, because believe me, I'm yeah. I'm down this rabbit hole. I keep going down it. I do. Yeah.
2: Well, I'm really proud of you for creating a voice and you know having the courage to one. Uh, you made a really valuable point that you know your fate was this experience, and you met it met it in a ways. And I chose with my clients a lot. Like, you we have destined points in our life, um and do you want to show up fully juiced up or do you want to be depleted? And you you put your A game on so that you could meet that moment with all things being met just by listening to your knowing. So thank you for that. Um, I think that's should be a really good example for people. One other thing before we exit out. After this experience, you got motivated to bodybuild, <laughs> which yeah. uh, I remember L- Larry, our mutual friend, uh sharing this too. Um, what was the motivation for that? I think it's amazing. Um, yeah. But you know, was it to be grounded in your body, like reconnect with your physical body or where was the inspiration? So it-
3: See, you're one of the few people that understand it because I can explain it and then not fully go through it. Um, the first reason really was out of frustration, um, because I had this massive scar down the center I was in Bhutan, I was meditating, like I was, I was spiritually grounded if you will. Um, but I was unhappy physically because I was mourning the loss of my womanhood and everything that I lost prior. And I don't think I really ever mourned the moment of, if you hear interviews in the past, you'll hear, oh, and I died for 37 seconds. And then I move on to the next topic. I don't, I don't really, I'm like, I never wanted to feel it. And somebody made mention of that one time. And, and, you know, and as I went through this kind of metamorphosis, if you will, I was like, you know, maybe I'm just holding on to too much. Every time I do acupuncture on that scar, I break down crying. And I'm like, I need to be tethered. Like I was having a hard time grounding. And so they talk about like, even in books, like you pray love and like the mind, body, soul, I here it was the mind was functioning to help save the soul, but the body was in complete turmoil and healthy. I was getting. However, um, with menopause and me complaining constantly, everybody would say, Stephanie, look at what you've been through. It's okay. You've had babies. You've had your body hacked up. It's okay. And I've never been one to, to just be like, it's okay. Either you stop complaining and you live with it, or you do something about it and you make it better. And so I kind of did the latter because I was like, I can't stand hearing myself bitch anymore about the physical. So I, you know, I'm a total immersion kind of person. I'm like, and also short term, I'm like, what is the fastest way? There was no way I could do plastic surgery because of all the trauma. I would have lost blood supply of belly button. I wasn't going under the knife for, for all reasons. So I was like, Everything I kept reading was this bikini bodybuilding competition, and it was sixteen weeks of diet exercise, and I'm like, "Okay, you know what if I do anything for sixteen weeks, it's gonna change, and at least I can have a focus um somebody's telling me what to eat, somebody's telling me what to do and um and then I was like, Okay, it wasn't easy. Um, my father died in between this process, uh, but it was what my brain could handle. And uh, I never expected the results that I had from this process because your audience can't see what I looked like then or back then. But on TikTok, I've done a couple of things, which you can see where my body was before I started. And if you would have told me I could get the body that I I have now, with all of the trauma, I would have been like, you're absolutely crazy. So it's really... It it helped create a stronger physique that resembles the warrior that's inside. Of mm-hmm. And I remember Dallas Greece saying one time, like, you know, if your soul doesn't like you have to keep your body as a five-star temple, if it if you or five-star hotel. If you do not, your soul could just find its own five-star hotel. And so that it, it's a it's a funny little thing that he used to say, but But I was like, I have felt, you know, for your audience, it'll be fine. But for any other audience, it it would not be. But I have felt what hitchhikers feel like, hitchhiking souls. I have felt like when you have 60 people's blood and tissue and energy infused into your body, what that feels like when you're coming out of it and how different your, your soul moves over and everything else takes over. And one can say, this is the medication, the trauma, but I believe that through all of that energy, that's, you know, immediately infused into your body. It's like, it does something to your your soul. And so, so now I feel like, okay, the body is stronger. You know, I'm 51 now. And so you think about like what uh, osteoporosis can do in the future, you know, you. you you push that all off by doing this. So I'm happy it started, but this would have never happened without going through everything that I went through. And then in addition to be able to share with the audience, yeah, it's never too late to start this. And this isn't, this isn't a weight loss program. I'm not here saying, oh, okay, let's join, join a weight loss program. I'm just saying like, it's possible. So all these moms that are telling me, you know, I've had three children, I've had IVF and everything. I'm like, I hear you. I've also had that and I've had kidney failure and I've flatlined and I've had this and that. He said, but you can tell somebody else that I completely understand because I did it for years. Um, but there is a way to do it. If you, if you want to do it.
2: Well, two things, the Taoist priest, you know, to your feeling of the like we're electromagnetic fields. So, which you much, you very much, I feel felt when you came back into your body, the electromagnetic surge of you re-entering. So everything that we touch or feel or whatever, we leave an electromagnetic imprint. So for certain, having all those energies come together to put you back together would have an impact. Um, So I I applaud you for even assimilating to that because I know working as an integrative specialist at times, Western medicine does not account for that. <laughs> they don't even know yeah. how to speak to that. And even some of the Eastern art, are, they kind of slough over it. So I'm really proud of you. Um, and the other part, do you feel like the bodybuilding really helped your mental state of being also um, just like bringing it all together I think, again? I think
3: so, because I, I feel like, well, first of all, it empowered me. Like I'm doing this myself. Like there's, there's no doctor that's in charge of this body. This is me doing so. And, and it's not for everybody. There people have limitations with things. And I totally understand that. But, you know, for me, I was like, if I'm going to be in pain, I'd rather be in pain from lifting weights and seeing the body transform and seeing a goal. And I'm, I'm goal oriented. So there was a linear goal. It helped me um, feel like I could present a message being stronger physically than than the same message when I was weaker physically. Because when I would get on stage and I would speak, I'd be flattened afterwards. Like there was no, and and there were grounding exercises like you obviously, you know, share and teach, but I didn't fully believe that, that this all had a spiritual explanation. So while I'm in search of it, I'm like, oh, I'll still give a speech. And then I get hit and knocked down with a thousand people's energy. And I'm like, I'll see you next Tuesday. Cause I'm like, there's no way that I'm going to be able to get up from this bed. Um, And then I'm questioning, why is that? So I feel like the strength that I've given the body gives me when I'm not fully um, prepared to ground. Like if I take a one-two punch, it's like I can get back up a little easier than I could before when I was weaker, for sure. Good.
2: Well, you're amazing. You're a bright light of inspiration on so many fronts, uh, you know, for all of us out there that have met um, adversity. So I thank you for your great work. Thank you so um, Share with the audience where they can uh, connect to your next, netflix segment we'll put the links below but i always feel like it's good for you to orate where yeah
3: um so on the website it has a lot of the information so it's stephaniearnold.net and then on tiktok it's stephaniearnold37 or on instagram it's stepharnold 37 um but it's at anywhere you can find it pretty much easily findable perfect well, I thank you for being
1: once again. I want to thank all of you and Stephanie Arnold for being here today as inspired. Please support her great work by purchasing her book or gifting it to someone you love and watching her segment on the Netflix film series entitled surviving death. All the links are below and we're going to exit out with a little Kadri Scott beauty is and stephanie you truly are a beauty to all of us thank you for spreading awareness knowing and your bright light
0: what makes it beautiful the way it is the way it looks at you the way it lives the way it feels the way it gives the way you call it mine and grasp onto it But if ill-intended True beauty will fade Can't be manufactured Not man-made It's brewed in the soul Like a fine wine With a lid
1: signing out the full heart a soft gaze a deep bow and a namaste b simply